I'm Ruth Mortimer, Managing Director for Global Education at Advertising Week, and I'm Joey Leichman, VP of Buyer Development at OpenX, and you're listening to the Agency Roadshow. Today we're meeting Luke Lambert, who is the EVP and Head of Activation at OMD USA. A couple of interesting things about Luke. Number one, he has one of the best beards in the business, truly, that I've ever seen. Um, Number two, because we are recording these sessions in a COVID world, we unfortunately can't record these in person. And you will notice that a dog makes repeated appearances throughout the episode, which for me was the most exciting part. No offense to Luke. So excited to get into it with him today on a variety of topics, not just within programmatic, but across all media. And that seems a good moment for me to welcome Luke Lambert, EVP and Head of Activation at OMD USA to the show. Luke, welcome. Thank you, Ruth. It's great to be here. I will try to cover everything, as you just said, but uh, I'll probably miss some things along the way. It, It was a very wide brief, but maybe we could start off hearing, first of all, about you and your role at OMD. Yeah, absolutely. I think we got to go back to the uh, beginning to get to the future on this one. I came over to Omnicom to lead the Acumen office in Chicago, which was the programmatic arm of Omnicom and, and OMG. And I quickly got the opportunity to choose red or purple uh, and join either OMD or, or PhD to integrate that practice. Here we are five years later, and we've integrated on top of that the search and social practices out of resolution and ultimately the digital and all buying practices, really. You know, I think of my new role of leading activation in two parts. Part one is running our activation group, which is anyone hands-on keys and hands-on code. So an IO is still hands-on keys uh, and SEO is my hands-on code. And I think everything in between is is pretty standard. Uh, I also have a product and practices group dedicated to channel expertise, being focused on the future, what people should know, and also setting what I consider to be the procedural elements beyond the process and protocol elements that come out of our central uh, team at OMG. So it sounds like you're actually doing two jobs in one there, the hardest working man in marketing. But would you tell us a little about how you got to OMD? You've had an incredible career. Can you give us the 122nd version? I sure can. So I started my career uh, in the publishing side of media, working at the Chicago Tribune, which at the time was its own holding company. And one of, I think, maybe two publishers that had the rights to all media materials or media channels in a marketplace. So we had print, we had TV, we had radio, we had out of home and evolved from there to go work for the journal. I took my jump from there in a cannonball mode into a startup, built an ad network there, at which point Centro called and Sean Riegsecker and Charlie Thomas at the time running sales said, look, we need someone to go between our product group and our sales group and run effectively sales engineering, run alongside those teams and make sure they have the best understanding of our products. So I spent a few years doing that, ultimately acquiring a DSP called SiteScout out of Toronto, which has been integrated into the time of Basis platform. And now that company is actually called Basis Technologies after a 20-year run. So kudos to Sean Riegsecker on that work. And my joining of of OMD, that's been my my latest endeavor. And I've said before that I don't like stagnation. It's not always the driver for why I move around, but Omnicom in particular has provided me nothing but pressure (laughs) to move forward and and to move into the future. And I'm sure you saw in the trades a 
recent announcement on organizing our very, very senior leadership between Daryl Sim, uh, Flo Advansky, and uh, George Manis. So there's uh, probably some more shuffling of the deck chairs along the way here that ultimately is a manner of moving a very big ship from legacy and into the future. And I'm happy to be on the boat. So you mentioned there um, moving OMD and OMG into the future. And we know that because holding companies and major agencies are so large, recording this podcast, we've realized that often you need to lay out the landscape a bit for people and contextualize it. So for those people listening who aren't familiar, can you contextualize where your team sits within OMD and OMG and how that's evolved? Absolutely. So we've gone over the past 18 plus months, maybe two years at this point, to reorganize within OMD. So what is OMD first and foremost? OMD is the initial and largest agency within OMG, the Omnicom Media Group. That umbrella covers our sister agencies, uh, PhD, Hearts and Science, and Resolution Agency, as well as some uh, significant uh, other SBUs like Omnet and Optimum Sports. Uh, And then we have some collaboration across OMC. Naturally, you can't really do media that well without tying into your creative partners. And we were born out of the creative agencies. Now, my team within OMD um, is technically an investment group, right? So we focus on the marketplace. We focus on making big decisions on where uh, and when to move dollars between partners and ultimately make sure that we're bringing that media insight, the activation insight further up the funnel uh, to, to impact the, the comms plan, the actual plan, some of the creative messaging that comes to life. That's really interesting. And Joey, I'm going to hand over to you to dig into some of the detail here about how that actually works with Luke. Yeah, absolutely. And Luke, I want to touch on one thing that you mentioned, uh, which is your history. So very obviously you came from the publisher side and then the, the tech slash vendor, if we can use that word slide, the uh, that word side, excuse me. Um, and now obviously you're over um, at an agency. Uh, how do you think those, those first two pockets of experience either, either help or hurt you now, now that you're fully over on the agency side? Yeah, I think it absolutely helped on the client management and ability to you know, move an agency's products forward. We have our own homegrown technology at Omnicom uh, called Omni. And it is the platform by which we um, do all things from briefing through activation and measurement. I don't think that having a background exclusively in the agency is, is the best path to being able to do that. So I've kind of held on to some of that sales engineering capability. And I love taking people through a product. I've, I've done plenty of demos, both globally and, and for new business pitches as well. And uh, I usually get the head nods in the room that I'm, that I'm looking for. And it's the, it's the simple stuff sometimes, right? Like don't move your mouse too fast, um, but also kind of know your product well so that when the questions come, you can answer it. On the, you know, on the, how it didn't help me, I would say, you know, as a vendor side, you're always a level or layer removed from the ultimate media plan and the goals. Even though you get the RFP, you may not have complete clarity into the, into the needs of, of the business. And so uh, moving into the agency, I got to move right into those very heavy client conversations about where they want to go, what they want to get done. And, you know, the planning portion of it happening a year in advance is not what you get on the vendor side, right? You get an RFP, uh, you have a meeting, whatever it is, it's very real time and your turns are much more quick. 
Yeah. So besides for, I guess, constant and, and near real-time communication, is there a solution for that? Meaning, is there a way that maybe not every partner slash vendor, but your, your core or foundational partner slash vendors can, can be along for the ride a bit more and not get pulled in so late in the game with everything bad that happens when that happens? Yeah, I think that goes into the early planning stages for the year when we really start to set the tone for for these client goals. I, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that vanity KPIs are not going to move your business. And so if we focus on the things that we know to be true and those things uh, that move the business, we can plan accordingly and start to pull in some of those partners. Uh, we should use partners instead of vendors of that for, for that group. Um, and the partners themselves set out you know, a joint business plan for us. And it's it's been quite lucrative, I'll say, for the agency from a capability perspective. It's not about making money from the partners. It's rather about being able to access more, um, be guaranteed more. You know, rates are always a good thing, but everyone can get good pricing. We just happen to be really big, so we get great pricing. Um, I think that is is really the the source of how you get that done. And then the upfront starts. We <laughs> feel like we just finished it, and you know now I'm looking at spring and how fast that's going to come through and. The upfront itself is another another uh, opportunity for our partners to to put their best foot forward and, and be along for that ride. And over the last two years, personally, being a digital guy, cannonballing into uh, the upfront, it's been quite quite enlightening uh, to where where <laughs> where legacy issues are and, and how we can rather quickly turn that uh, turn the tide and, and and get people thinking about you know, business outcomes over or over media pricing. You mentioned business outcomes there and KPI. Could you just give us an example of what is one of the KPIs that businesses should be looking for that you feel they don't focus on enough? Yeah, so when I say the the, the KPI side of things, there there are things that absolutely are required to make those micro optimizations. Right, you're in console day in day out, shifts in dollars based on the performance signals you're seeing, and you need to have a KPI though that ties back to the right level of performance. Um, really CPM and, and viewable CPM to an extent um, are good indicators, but they're not necessarily tied to a business outcome. And some of it is a matter of having a great pixel map <laughs> that can indicate the right outcome that you're looking for, the right audience that you're looking for and addressing them accordingly. I do think that most of your KPIs get stuck into particular points in the funnel. Uh, and that's where you need to shift to the business KPIs of how are all things impacting my end goal to move my widgets off my shelf, to grow my relationship with my customers, uh, to put a stake in the ground on what we are and what we represent, which is not usually what you see in marketing, at least over the last few years. You know, I think back into the 90s, you certainly saw some of it um, more prevalent with the, with the emotional aspect of, of media. I think that's a really important point. Back to you, Joey. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so Luke, let, let's go back quickly. You mentioned that when you started at Omnicom, you were leading programmatic for Acumen in Chicago. Your remit became wider and wider. And now you're at a place where programmatic is just one piece of many. And I love how you put it where your wheelhouse is hands-on keys or hands-on code. So there's a lot going on besides just pure play programmatic. So I guess this is a, a two-parter for you is, is when you had, I think you described it as like your matrix or sliding doors moment. How uncomfortable or daunting was that for you before you made the decision to move ahead? And then once you got into it, as someone with really hardcore programmatic DNA, what's been maybe the most difficult aspect of the work to get your head around? 
It's <laughs> a bit of a loaded question. Yes, I, it's been uncomfortable every step of the way, but I noted that I don't really like stagnation. And so being pushed and being out of my comfort zone is actually where I'm most comfortable. You know, there's an excellent book called Smart Cuts by Shane Snow, who was the editor-in-chief for Contently. And and Shane and I had met at a very small conference down in Arizona. And, you know, he, he talked a bit about the book and, you know, we got to sit down and, and, and pick our way through it. But the smart cuts themselves are about never being comfortable. And if you look at some of the most successful people in history, uh, my favorite example being Barack Obama, uh, going from community organizer to junior senator into the presidency, those are, he took some smart cuts along the way. So I think I try and embrace that mentality first and foremost. Now, the hardest thing for me has been the opposite side of the coin, getting my brain back to the traditional side. So I have obviously that background in publishing, but you know, setting myself up for success around moving the needle on GRPs or TRPs and into a new form of measurement for a linear partner, as example, has been pretty daunting because you've got to understand that the way it was done in order to build the better mousetrap. And now that you're sitting on top of various channels and various execution modes, do you think that the traditional agency model is too siloed, meaning you have folks who deeply understand programmatic, but, but nothing else, and folks who deeply understand maybe like analytics, but nothing else? Does there need to be more 360 comprehensive understanding throughout the org? Is that even a, a practical thing to shoot for if it is important? Yeah, you know, I think it's absolutely necessary. On the, on the agency side, though, we have done all we can do to embed that digital expertise into our planning side. So a lot of our senior folks that came out of an Acuin or a resolution have actually moved out of activation and investment and into what we call cross-media planning, which is a great way of taking that really nuanced, hyper-targeted, hyper-optimized you know, skill set and putting it front and center on a plan and a planning team. So we made some good moves out along that front. We've also started to integrate across ad tech, martech, and marketing science because they're so interconnected, whereas previously they probably felt a little bit disjointed and siloed, if, if you will. So I think we've made some really good moves along this front. I also think we have clients that are um, along for the ride. I call it a bit of the, the, an inchworm uh, way across the timeline, right? The agency typically has to get out in front. And then the rest comes following behind, whether it's the client or a publisher, um, and we inchworm, inchworm our way down, right? Once everyone catches up, we spring forward. The, you know, the, the bit on, on the client side is that's where I think being such big groups can have their own silos between their tech teams or their enterprise teams and the actual client and media marketing teams. So, you know, that inchworm is on the move. So, so going back then, Luke, to the idea of this idea of silos, but what about the similarities? Because you seem to be a proponent of the idea that particular buying channels like social or paid search or programmatic, they're all functionally the same despite their nuances, ways to purchase media. Is that accurate or would you phrase that differently? Yeah, what I would say is as a consumer, where, where and when you experience our brands, you're not thinking... Well, maybe you are sometimes, but you're not necessarily thinking this is a social environment. And so I'm going to get a different experience here from that same brand that I saw on, on, on TV. And we're storytellers at heart. So we need to find ways to 
tell the story across the environments, walled gardens, open, big publishers, and really make sure that when someone is sitting home or sitting at the office at home or at work or on the go, that when they see part of the story, that they don't see that same chapter over and over again and get taken through the experience that we're trying to uh, trying to communicate. So on the on the front of like where it shows up for a consumer, we have to do it on our side, right? We have to have these teams talking and working together. In fact, if an agency uh, member says, I have a question about social, they don't email my social head. They email and should be emailing our alias for the product and practices group because we know that these questions are rarely channel specific anymore. I think there's opportunities as well, like how do you take social and organic social engagements and turn that into creative, both in social environments, as well as in you know open environments that you can run programmatically. So there's a lot that can be done and is being done uh, to ensure that those silos come down. Now, what we can't give up is sharp edges and activation. It is very, very difficult for someone to be both a programmatic practitioner and a social practitioner. While it feels the same and on the surface, you say this is biddable, they're far from the same experience for the user as well, which maybe gives rise to something like a, a meta platform of sorts. And I really, really wish Facebook didn't pick up that word because it's one of my favorites. <laughs> but nonetheless, I do think that there's going to be some kind of you know, evolution of platform that can connect across uh, multiple types of channels like this. And it could be as simple as, you know, the IO platform that turns into, um, you know, a, a vendor management platform in real time or something to that tune. But we'll see. I, I would hedge my bet that way, though. Okay, excellent. I like a good prediction of the future. Luke, listen, we weren't necessarily going to bring it up, but because you did, maybe two minutes on, on Facebook slash Meta, what do you make of the name change overall? And I think maybe more importantly, just given that you're a steward for so many brands, you and then collectively Omnicom, uh, in, in the public domain, at least, when we talk about the trades or, or folks giving spicy takes publicly, uh, there seems to be a love-hate relationship with, with Facebook, particularly and brands. If, if you could kind of give us a temperature check on that today, where do folks stand on that? And do you think the meta change will move that needle at all? Look, I think the, the meta change is similar to the alphabet change. I don't know what it would ultimately mean for the platform outside of stepping away and saying, I'm no longer the guy who runs Facebook, meet new guy who runs Facebook or gal who runs Facebook. I run meta, you know, that's my take on Zuck. Uh, but as for clients and their perspective of something like a, a name change, it's, it's not, it's not skewing their opinions. And you're right. Some are saying, and some are the same person saying it, of we get such great performance here, or we know that we have limited waste here in this environment, but we have brand safety concerns and those brand safety concerns can be literal of in feed on screen. What does it mean to show up in front of or next to along the scroll of this sort of content? typical, right? Standard brand safety to the bigger brand safety protocol of what does it mean for a consumer to know that we're even leveraging uh, that platform to, to better ourselves. So I think that's the side that will have the most shaking of the tree this year, where a, a client may look to any platform, not just Facebook, but we're talking about Facebook, but they'll look to it and say, is this right for what we are as a brand? And I think there will be more and more decisions to be more conscious of 
those moments of pause and review and reflection on, on what those things are doing beyond the media KPIs to the brand. You know, we did a study a few years back now around negative reach and what that looks like as exposure in the marketplace. And we've swung that pendulum back just a little bit to say, if you can bring objectivity to where you're showing up, your concern over that one screenshot turning into a million impressions via a tweet can be alleviated. And that's another goal that we probably have to think about when we're talking about a platform like Facebook. Perfect. Okay. So maybe from one loaded topic to the next, let's switch gears completely. Let's talk about user opt-ins and consent. So broadly speaking, what do you think the future of of user opt-ins looks like? And then maybe more interestingly, what do we do as an industry if once cookies finally do go away, we don't get a critical mass of users opting in? What do we do then? If only we had a history to look back on where cookies weren't the leverage point. (laughs) You know, look, I I think if we were to go back and and rebuild the internet, the cookie would not be uh, how we do a lot of what we do. At least the third party cookie certainly wouldn't be how we do what we do. I think opt-in of, you know, I've said it, I think I said it almost two years ago now that, you know, 0% opt-in is is realistic. Now we've got some learning under our belts. You know, it's like, well, maybe sub 10% is, is realistic. I think that's more on the app tracking front. I think publishers, though, have a real opportunity to embrace what the paywalls have done in the past to be to share walls. And that means, hey, we're going to use this information to make sure that your experience is as good as it has been and stays the same, um, if not gets better uh, as a result of of really much more uh, addressable media coming to the forefront and using things like a new identifier uh, UID 2.0 is one of the things Omnicom has embraced and was the first to get behind. Um, looking at uh, live ramp solution and ATS and how fast that could scale across publishing sets. All of this with the desire to get away from the cookie, but remain addressable and privacy compliant. Huge proponent for privacy. That's interesting. And add, adding to that, then, do you think that programmatic, with your experience in publishing um, and now at OMD, do you think programmatic is the best or really only channel that can effectively target those opt-in users once they've opted in? Well, it wouldn't be the only, or it wouldn't be the only way, I should say, but I do think that it's probably going to be the linchpin for it all. The, the, the programmatic of yesteryear, the big P, the thing you I.O., uh, the channel you measure is what needs to go away. Uh, and it really needs to be the, the lowercase p with an L-Y. It's a way in which we do things. We shouldn't be measuring an I.O. Uh, process. We shouldn't be measuring uh, programmatically. We should be measuring the partners on the other end of the transaction, which when you curate accordingly and really think about the places that your brand should be showing up, the open exchange is a great place to get inventory and access but the entirety of it is not useful. So curation at the core of what we do can can give us an opportunity to make sure that programmatic is the way that we optimize towards these these publishers as well as the the audiences, right? We use audiences as the insight and probably the reason that we transact at that moment, but we purchase inventory, right? We buy from publishers. And so I think keeping a keen eye on evaluating the publisher, not just the audience is, is really important. Now, um, speaking of audiences, we are going to take you to the next section of the podcast now, Luke, where um, Joey and I are going to be asking you a few rapid fire questions. Um, 
before we let you go. And in fact, the audience is often one of the biggest things that keeps me up at night during my work. And one of the things I'd love to know from you is what actually keeps you up at night? You know, not necessarily your family, but what's the work thing that causes you the most anxiety? It's staff. And it's, it's, it's having enough people to do the job. That's what keeps me up at night. It is really tough to recruit right now. And I think that it is a good thing that it's tough to recruit right now. I think it's a changing tide and a good signal for what it means for our workforce in total. And I would love to see more people, one, making more money, but feeling more engaged with the work that we do. So getting, getting more people in the door that really want to do what we do means going outside of you know advertising schools and into you know schools of econ- of, of economy, economy and economics and, and even into the business classes and engineering classes. And are you seeing the people who do come to you are looking for something different from a role now? When they join your team, are they still looking for what they used to? You know, the entry level and the soon after entry level, I don't think they know what we do. And if being an industry as large as media is because the experience isn't with the media itself always, it's with the creative that shows up in the media, there is a early education that has to happen for people to be able to self-select into what they wanna be doing. It's the matter of getting people to understand in advance of what they're signing up for. And we found a lot of success in going outside of, of, of ad schools. Now we still go to them, of course, but you know, we've recruited you know, pure play traders, real like Wall Street traders uh, to come on over and. It's been uh, very successful to see that sort of thing happen. Luke, has COVID in any way changed the way that you try to recruit for talent? Not just maybe location, but the type of person you're looking for or the core skills that you're looking for. I know you mentioned that recruiting has gotten harder. I think a lot of people have felt that, but I'm also wondering if, if your approach has changed over the last year and a half. Yeah, we well, said the first part already, right? The the expansion of where we're looking to hire people. You know, we're setting down roots in new cities that we hadn't been in before. So while it is a common change to make, it's a really important one for, for an OMD because it's never been our way. From there, though, we're back to focused on those sharp edges, right? So if you're not entry level, our goal is to make sure that we're bringing in people that know what they're doing, can hit the ground running, can embrace our onboarding and trainings and make it additive to what they already know. They, it, that is the most significant part of, of, uh, of what's holding us back, is finding the talent that has that sharp edge. Uh, and maybe going from, uh, from anxiety to excitement, uh, what, is there a, a specific piece of tech or a product or, or something you're working on that, that you can talk about, obviously, but from your POV, the, the single most exciting thing that you're, that you're thinking about or looking forward to? Wow. I only get one, huh? Yeah. You can give yeah. us two. We have time. <laughs> I, I think we're, we're working in an advanced position around all things clean rooms. You know, we, we were the first to really push Google to create ADH. We've onboarded InfoSum as an independent clean room. We're going to be the first to leverage the Disney clean room. I think those are the places where walled garden data, publisher data, audience data can come together for the most insightful activations. That is the thing that's like, okay, not enough people know about this, or maybe not enough people care about it. Um, And it's difficult to put into layman's terms of this is what we're doing with this. This is why it's a safe place to be. This is why we're still privacy compliant. All of that is cool challenges to face and great conversations to have with our clients. Yeah. How difficult is it to explain 
clean room technology and benefits to maybe your, your I don't want to say average, but your average client? <laughs> I would say not that difficult and not that difficult because we have really good people on that side of the house underneath the leadership of, of, of Seb or no, our, our local Frenchman who leads that group. And, and Seb is, is brilliant. And what he's been able to do in, in bringing our, our whole holding company kind of forward with the understanding is kind of trickled down into our clients, even been presented to, directly to them. So he's done a great job of making sure people understand the nuances between both the ID space and the clean rooms. And we make the announcements as often as we can around these, these fast things. But if we can comp- combine that publisher audience with activatable audiences uh, without exposing client data, everyone's kind of happy and nodding their head. So it's a good spot to be in. That's for sure. I think, you know, Joey, that there's never an average client. We can can (laughs) never say that. (laughs) But Luke, what I wanted to ask you is with the non-average clients at the non-average agency, obviously, how has agency life changed over the last one to two years? Obviously the pandemic has changed things so much, but how do you think it's going to change going forward? Yeah, I think there will be a, a flexible return to the office work in the world. We've been lucky to have our offices all open for a lot of COVID um, because of some of the great protocols we've, we've put in place. There's been a need to shift and define culture where it hadn't been before. And I think I sent an email out within my first couple of months here saying, we have a culture problem. Culture is not yoga on Tuesdays and a beer cart on Thursdays. That's not culture. Uh, culture is what makes us different from everyone else and also unique within ourselves. And so if we can really hone in on what makes us different, I think we'll have a a really great fighting chance of coming out of COVID even stronger than we were when we came into it. If we can think about culture in the sense of what makes us uh, truly unique to to ourselves. I mean, the OMD is comparison to our purple, purple friends at PhD or the blue guys at Hearts and Science or the, the orange down at Res. We, we know that there's nuance there that needs to be relevant to separate us from each other. I mean, we're, we're sister agencies and you know, I don't have any sisters. My mother was blessed with all boys, <laughs> but, um, but I've come across enough of them to know that um, there's usually a, a good gap and divide in between who they are and how they represent themselves. And so we're going to have to do the same and continue to, to keep the pedal on the metal. What about the piece of advice you would give someone? So the kind of advice you might sit thinking of on a plane, going on your business travel. What's that one piece of advice that you would give someone who's just starting out in their career in the agency business or hoping to? Wear your mask. (laughs) Sound advice, Luke. Sound (laughs) advice. (laughs) Sanitize when you can. Take your vitamins. You know, be well. But I, I think if you're just starting out your career in media, it's, it's in your best interest to get as capable as possible and as dangerous as possible across uh, as many platforms and capabilities as possible. Like that's the right way to start is to build a really strong foundation across as much as you can, because it gives you the best insight into where you can then go focus. And it's like any other education system or process and change in life. It's, you know, maybe you're happy, maybe you're making a decision that's really big and going to impact you for a long time. And if you focus in too much on that one thing, uh, it may take you a few more years to figure out you don't like it and you want to do something else. So I think that's, that's where I would tell anybody starting in media, set a good foundation. Fantastic. I think be, be dangerous is excellent advice in any career, but especially this one. 
Um, and I've really enjoyed your insights, Luke, particularly on the big war for talent that this industry faces, how you explain the really complex jobs that we do within the agency world, all the different options that we have ahead of us about cookies and context, which you bring from your knowledge of publishing. And I really enjoyed the way you spoke about the consumer first approach. No one goes about going, this is an ad I saw on social media. They just don't they just don't use that in real life and keeping the consumer first in your thoughts. And lastly, the importance of culture and differentiating yourself. It's been a real privilege talking to you, Luke. Joey, anything else to add? I've got nothing. But Luke, I hope to see you on one of your next trips to New York. I will wear a mask. I will sanitize before I see you. <laughs> Ditto. You've got my word on it, Joey. No <laughs> Thanks so much, Luke. All right, Ruth. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been the Agency Roadshow. You can find us at your favorite podcast store, where we'd appreciate you sharing with your colleagues. And if you have a minute, a kind review.